Welcome to the Cosmic Eye Show, where we explore spiritual ideas and books that help you live a better life. Hosted by spiritual teacher and author of If You Can Worry, You Can Meditate, Jason Napolitano. All right, welcome to the Cosmic Eye Show. I have today with me Chris Sheridan on the phone. He is the co-host of the show today, and we're going to be examining the book He by Robert Johnson. Chris is a spiritual te- teacher and author of The Spirit in the Sky. Welcome, Chris. Good to be here, Jason. Thank you. Thanks for showing up again. Uh, and if anyone listened to our podcast last week, uh, it's new, but uh, I would like to refer you to that. We did uh, The Secret Teachings of All Ages by Manley Hall. And if I do say so myself, we did a pretty great job, Chris. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, a little round, round of applause. For yes. <laughs> and a pat on the All back. All right. So you are chrissheridan.com. That is where we can find you. Yes. And, and your book is The Spirit in the Sky, Chris Sheridan. Uh, and that's available on Amazon. On and Amazon. I am Jason Napolitano. And I am at CosmicEye.org, or of course on this podcast, and the information's in the bio. And my book is If You Can Worry, You Can Meditate, which is available on Amazon now. So that, we got those plugs out of the way. All right. Let's jump into Mr. Robert Johnson. So I'm going to go ahead and just quickly contextualize this by reading the bio of Robert Johnson's bio in the version of the book that I have. I have he, and he is... Uh, Total, let's, let me get the total title here, because uh, I like to read the full title as I did last week with Secret Teachers. So this is he, a contribution to understanding masculine psychology based on the legend of Percival and his search for the grail and using Jungian psychological concepts by Robert Johnson. So let me read Robert Johnson's quick bio. He actually passed away. I just saw it today. I, I did not know this, but September 12, 2018, and he was 97 years old. All right, so let me get into this real quick. Robert A. Johnson was born in 1921 in Portland, Oregon. He attended the University of Oregon and Stanford University, then studied under Fritz Kunkel in Los Angeles. That was at the uh, C.G. Jung Institute, the early C.G. Jung Institute in L.A. This led to study at the C.G. Jung Institute in Zurich, Switzerland, and further work under Tony Sussman in London, England. Mr. Johnson has made a specialization of the synthesis of Christianity and the work of C.G. Jung. The rest of this is not applied because he has passed away, but he did a lot of work at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in San Diego, and John Sanford, who's also an excellent Jungian and I believe still alive, uh, worked with him a lot. All right, so let's jump into this. Uh, I wanted to first kind of set it out uh, why and we'll both, you know, have our ideas about this. I think we're both on the same page, but maybe in different ways or what have you. Why we think this this book is important. Why don't I let you start since I've been yammering? So please, please tell me. Okay. Well, for me personally, being a guy, I um, have wrestled with many of these issues. I was able to see my story in this uh, story of Parsifal and also get some clues and cues on how to move through it. Uh, And it explains a lot of some of the troubles I've had um, in my growth and maturity over the years. Uh, Makes me feel not alone because obviously other people (laughs) have had this enough to where people are writing books about it. So it's uh, perhaps some universal themes, but uh, I got some good ideas on how to, um, how to approach my life and my um, maturity uh, as a male. And also, uh, it, it's timely not just in my life as I'm in middle age, uh, it's timely in our 
time and age um, where, um, well, the short version is that masculinity is under attack, but I think it's, it's a much um, deeper and more uh, complex um, problem with that. Um, and uh, masculinity needs to be matured. Uh, men need to, and unfortunately, it seemed to be really cut off from some of the myths. Um, fatherhood is uh, really down, especially in a lot of communities. Sure. Um, the imprisonment or, you know, off to work or off to war and all Absolutely. these things um, that, um, you know, a richer, more in-depth understanding of what it means to be a man and how to go about doing it. And what's so interesting about this book, even though, yes, it's he and it's understanding masculine psychology, much of the story and much of the analysis really has to do with the feminine, and how these relationships um, play out uh, from a mother to a lover to a idealized yeah, archetype sure. of what a woman should be. Um, you know, this is it's very, very important part of the story. It's not just uh, going off and slaying the dragon. It's, um, it's really how to be a man in, in so many ways. And a very important way is to be a smart man as far as your relationship with the yeah. women in your life. Absolutely. And, and I think uh, that makes a good point. And I think really one of the things he talks about um, throughout the book is how, you know, the book and the, the grail legend itself, the grail uh, story is a, is a, is a map uh, to understanding the, the inner feminine world and not a map for dealing with outer flesh and blood women because you said it all falls apart if you, you know, if you try to, to approach them in a, you know, in the way you would in your inner psychology. Speaking of that, let's just touch on really quickly uh, before we do the synopsis of the grail myth, because I want, I want to make sure we've set this up for, for the listener if they're not familiar. So the grail that we're talking about is the Holy Grail and the mythology behind that. And I'm not saying it's not true, but the mythology in the big sense of the word mythology, in a symbolic sense, is that that is the, uh, the the cup that was used at the Last Supper, and in addition, it was also the cup that caught the water, and the blood that flowed from Christ's side when he was pierced by the Roman soldier, and it was Joseph of Arimathea that caught that blood in the chalice, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, in 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 most mythology uh, that I that I know. Um, so that's that's the grail. Do you have anything to add to that? Um, that's a yeah, quick, uh, very clear way of describing it. Okay. Sure. Um, and and the the grail too. It's um, often seen as a metaphor, a symbol for um, the womb. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it, even the grail itself has a has Seven a feminine quality. Yeah, um, that, that makes sense. Yeah, as as well. And and so it's into this. Uh, it's it's with this symbolic understanding that we have to we have to look at this story. Uh, this, the second uh, thing that I want to kind of contextualize is the idea of of the feminine within man may may not if people aren't you know used to archetypal psychology they may not understand what that means. So we'll briefly I'll briefly have you explain what the anima is, what Jung's concept of the anima a n i m a. How do you understand that? Well, my understanding is that there is a feminine side or part um, of every male, and the flip side is the 
um, animus, which would be the masculine component um, within uh, the feminine. And it's um, one of the ways I visualize it is with the, um, with the Tai Chi, with the yin yang symbol. Mm -hmm. So you have, you know, this curved kind of half dark side and this other uh, side is the light side, but within the dark side, um, there's a, a white dot. And within the light side, there's a dark, a black dot. Uh, that is a kind of a nice visual. I always go to that when I think of anima and anima. So always in my mind, I go to that visual representation. Oh, great. Yeah. You can clearly see, um, you know, the, the yin and the yang and the yang and the yin or the, as sure. said, the that's a great, uh, the that's a great, a great, uh, point. And, uh, you know, rep and it's an inner character and, um, and we'll maybe get to this, but, um, Johnson makes a clear distinction that there's a difference between, um, your inner, um, feminine, your, your anima, um, than it is for, actual flesh and blood women out in yeah, the uh, yeah, exactly. real world. And it can become really problematic when you try to confuse the two or cross one over to the other. That's a great point. Um, they, you know, they serve different, per they take a different approach. Uh, but the easy, you know, the, I guess the easy way to say, well, it's, you know, a man getting in touch with his feminine side and the, the stereotype maybe seen in commercials. Or, sure. Sure. You know, you have this burly man and he's he man and he does this and he barbecues and burps and uh, drinks his beer and all that. And then he, you know, then he takes a ballet class or something to get in touch with his sure, um, sure. feminine side. And that's that's cute and very surfacey. Yeah. Um, but it's uh, and that may be true, but but there's a lot more. But in, to yeah, it in essence, I think that. what you were saying is important that really the the anima is not about, you know, putting on a tutu and, you know, running around with with your daughter and you know, pretending like you're a woman, it's more about creating a good relationship with the inner feminine portion of yourself, if you're a man, so that you can then effectively um, deal with and form relationship with the women and, and girls and so forth in your life. And I think that's, that's a that's a really important um, role that this, this, this book plays. In other words, it's, it's a guide to to do just such a thing. And I think I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I think, you know, that's kind of one of the reasons we many people have trouble with masculinity today is because they see so much poisoned quality of masculinity where you see this adolescent behavior, this chest thumping and fighting and, you know, um, and brinksmanship and so on that, that a lot of politicians and business leaders and so on engage in. And that is not a, a positive type of masculinity. What really is going on is they have a very a uh, bad relationship with their inner, inner feminine. And then it comes out in nasty ways uh, on society, I think. And that's one of the problems. We don't have a lot of leaders who emulate the king energy, the positive masculine energy any longer, where they've actually integrated the anima in. Uh, so, so we don't have a lot of good uh, role models. So that's why another reason contextualizing the book, why it's so important to read these myths like, like Parsifal and so forth. And then, the Arthurian legends and so on. So we can get some sort of archetypal understanding of what this energy is all about, because there are very few human representatives of it today. Would you agree? I would agree. And, and where this really points to in this myth and in so many others that towards the end, somebody, you know, comes home or they, you know, solve a problem or heal something um, or conquer something that it is, it's a path towards completeness 
and wholeness in the person within the individual exactly that for a man to really be a man he a complete person just happens to be a man um, but a, a male person needs to um, understand and embrace uh, the anima uh, the the feminine the interior feminine yeah. um, in a proper way first of all to understand it and then to actually integrate and integrate and then in doing so um, not only do you become a better man um, in your relationships with women, you just become a better man and, of course, by extension, a better person because you are more complete and the flip side um, for women to do the same. They, and the, the thing about getting this other gender side, uh, archetypal gender, uh, integrated is that we don't usually that's not matured. It's usually not understood mm -hmm. with a lot of people. Yep. Uh, and then with these caricature images that we see in media, um, it's very stereotyped and um, really just kind of comical and very surfacy exactly. Uh, exactly. version of it that we never really um, embrace. And it doesn't mean, well, I'm going to embrace my feminine side. So I'm going to give up all my spears and hunting garb and I'm going to, um, you know, just, not be a man anymore. It doesn't mean no, that at all. As a matter of fact, you become a much better yeah, man. Absolutely. Uh, and the reason why, um, and this book points to this, where you know men are having uh, so many problems is because their anima, their feminine archetypal side, um, has not been integrated. And, but the consciousness and the soul tries to yeah. <laughs> tries to come up with a solution, and if not done properly, usually the solution in quotes uh, can cause more trouble than uh, absolutely than it's worth. then it becomes this this i think what what we see today where you get this over uh i don't want to say this the kind of the stereotypical masculinity meaning the dark side of that masculinity which it's it's not uh that's not the non-integrated um, you know, poisoned side of masculinity. And that's where I think people have to differentiate between the, the different qualities. Masculinity is a, is, a, is a rainbow of different qualities. And I think, you know, in the United States, especially, we've, we've stereotyped it down to playing football, drinking beer, eating chips and, and burping and farting or something like this. And, and then maybe getting in a bar brawl or something occasionally to really assert. But, you know, it's, it's not that certainly masculinity has qualities of, 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 of combat and of acquisitiveness and aggressiveness and assertiveness. And when those things are proper chan properly channeled, they are extremely valuable tools. And I think a lot of young men today don't have those tools. And that's one of the reasons why I would highly recommend this book, especially to, to the young men today who may not have male role models around and so forth. So with that being said, I don't, we're getting way ahead of ourselves, but mm -hmm. let's let's jump into a synopsis of, of this mythology so that the, the listener who has not heard this myth before at least is is in, you know, in the time and place and can understand this. So this comes from about the 12th century. This is the uh, the French version, kind of a synopsis of the French version of the poem, <coughs> excuse me, by uh, Chrétien de, uh, de Troyes. Uh, I, my French is, is very poor, so excuse me for that. I'll excuse your French. Excuse my French. <laughs> so let me go to the synopsis really quickly, and I will begin reading, and then you're going to take over at that spot we 
designated. Sure. All right, so here we go. Uh, synopsis of the Grail legend. The Holy Grail, the chalice of the Last Supper, is kept within a castle. The king of the castle has been wounded severely and suffers all the time. The whole land and all its people are in desolation. The king had been wounded early in his adolescence. While wandering in a forest, he had reached a camp which was empty except for a spit on which a salmon was roasting. He was hungry, so he, so he took a bit of the salmon. He burned his fingers horribly. To assuage the pain, he put his fingers into his mouth and tasted a bit of the salmon. So he is called the Fisher King because he was wounded by a fish. He was also wounded in the thighs, so he is no longer productive, and his whole land is no longer productive. The Fisher King lies on a litter, which must be carried everywhere, and he is able sometimes to fish, and only then is he happy. The Fisher King presides over the castle where the grail is kept, but he cannot touch the grail or be healed by it. The court fool is prophesied that the Fisher King would be healed when a holy, innocent fool arrives in the court. In an isolated country, a boy lives with his widowed mother, whose name is Heart Sorrow. At first, the boy does not have a name. Much later, he learns his name is Parsifal. His father had been killed while rescuing a fair maiden, and his two brothers had also been killed as knights. His mother had taken him to a far country and raised him in primitive circumstances. He wears homespun clothes, has no schooling, asks no questions. He's a simple, naive youth. Early in his adolescence, he sees five knights riding by on horseback. He's dazzled by the knights, their scarlet and gold trappings, their armor, and all their accoutrements. He, dashed, he dashes home to tell his mother that he has seen five gods and he wants to leave home to go with them. His mother weeps. She had hoped that, she, that he would not suffer the fate of his father and his brothers, but she gives him her blessing and three instructions. He must respect all fair maidens. He's to go daily to church where he will receive all the food he needs, and he is not to ask any questions. Parsifal goes off to find the knights. He never finds the same five knights, but he has all kinds of adventures. Uh, one day he comes to a tent. He had only known a simple hut, so he thinks that it is so that he thinks that this is the church his mother had told him about. He sees a fair damsel wearing a ring on her hand, so he obeys his mother's instructions by embracing the damsel, taking her ring and putting it on his own hand. He sees a table set for a banquet, and thinking it is the food his mother had told him he would find in the church, he eats it, not realizing it's prepared for the damsel's beloved knight. The damsel begs Parsifal to leave because if her knight finds him there, he will kill him. Parsifal goes on his way and soon finds a devastated convent and monastery. He cannot restore them, but he vows to return and raise the spell when he is stronger. Uh, is this where you're going to take over or is it the next one? Um, sure, I can, I can start from here. Yeah, go ahead, please. Okay. Um, well, then he meets a red knight who has come from King Arthur's court. Parsifal is dazzled by the knight and tells him that he too wants to be a knight. The red knight tells him to go to Arthur's court, which he does. In this court is a damsel who has not smiled nor laughed for six years. A legend says that when the best knight in the world comes along, she will smile and laugh again. When she sees Parsifal, she bursts into laughter. The court is impressed. Arthur knights Parsifal, gives him a page, and tells him that he may have the horse and armor of the red knight if he can get it. Parsifal finds the Red Knight, kills him, and takes his armor and puts it on over his homespun clothing. He finds his way to the castle of Gornamond, uh, who trains him to be a knight. Gornamond gives him two instructions. He must never seduce or be seduced by a woman. And when he reaches the Grail Castle, he must ask 
whom does the grail serve? Parsifal goes off and tries to find his mother and help her, but he finds that she died of a broken heart. Then he meets Blanche Fleur. Uh, from this time on, everything he does is in her service. She asks, asks him to conquer the army besieging her castle, which he does, and then he spends the night with her. After traveling all the next day, he meets two men in a boat. One of them, who was fishing, invites Parsifal to stay at his house for the night. When Parsifal reaches this house, he finds himself in a great castle where he is royally welcomed. He learns that the fisherman is the fisher king. He sees a ceremony in which a youth carries a sword that drips blood constantly, and a maiden carries the grail. At a banquet, the grail is passed about, and everyone drinks from it. The fisher's king's niece brings a sword, and the king straps it to Parsifal's waist. But Parsifal fails to ask the question that Gornamond had asked him to ask. Next morning, Parsifal finds that all the people of the castle have vanished, so the castle um, disappears. So he then goes on and finds a sorrowful maiden. He learns that her knight had been killed by the jealous knight of the maiden of the tent, so the death was really his fault. When she learns that he had been in the Grail Castle, she berates him for all his sins and tells him that the land and all its people will continue to be desolate. That's the right question. Later, he finds again the maiden of the tent. She reiterates all his misdeeds and tells him that the sword he had been given will break the first time it is used in battle, that it can only be mended by the smith who made it, and that after that, it will never break again. In the course of his journeys, Parsifal has seduced, or excuse me, has subdued many knights and sent them back to King Arthur's court. Uh, when he had been there before, they had not realized who he was. Arthur sets forth to search for Parsifal so the court can honor him. Parsifal happens to be camping nearby. A falcon attacks three geese and wounds one of them. Its blood on the snow reminds Parsifal of Blanche Fleur, and he falls into a trance. Two of Arthur's men see him and try to persuade him to return to the court, but he unhorses them. A third knight, Gawain, gently persuades him to go to the court with him. Parsifal is received in triumph at the court. But the rejoicing ends when a hideous damsel on a decrepit mule enters and recites all of Parsifal's sins. This is the third time it seems to be mm -hmm. happening. She points a finger at him and says, it is all your fault. She assigns tasks to all the knights. She tells Parsifal to search for the Grail Castle again, and this time, ask the right question. So they all seem to know what's going on more than he does. Parsifal goes on through many episodes. Some versions say that he travels for five years. Others say 20 years. He grows bitter and disillusioned. He does many heroic deeds, but he forgets the, chur the church, Blanche Fleur, and the Grail Castle. Then one day, he meets some pilgrims, who asks him why he is armed on Good Friday. He suddenly remembers what he had forgotten. Remorsefully, he goes with the pilgrims to a hermit for confession. The hermit absolves him and tells him to go immediately to the Grail Castle. Okay, the poem uh, stops here. Many authors have tried to finish it. One version says that Parsifal goes on to the Grail Castle and this time asks the right question, whom does the Grail serve? The answer is given. The Grail serves the Grail King. He is not the Fisher King, but the Grail King, who has lived in the central room of the castle from time immemorial. The 
Fisher King is healed immediately and the land and all its people can live in peace and joy. Great reading. Thank you. All right. So let's get into this um, and break it down a little bit. I mean, I really uh, just kind of wanted to share that story with people who might not be familiar with this legend um, and just contextualize it. Honestly, please read this book, Any Man and especially young men, because I think you will get a great deal out of it. But we're going to go into some of the uh, some of the details, at least some of the more important things that stick out uh, to us. And uh, and before we do, can I just yeah, throw in one more start. thing about the uh, about the legend itself? Um, and this may was probably common of, of mm-hmm. legends and myths uh, of the time that uh, the kingdom is only as good as the king. That if the king is suffering the people will be suffering. If the king can't reproduce, then the people can't. So that the, the good of the nation <laughs> or the people uh, was really tied in or was perceived to be tied, tied in to the well-being of the king. One, so that's one of the reasons you know, to heal the... Absolutely. And one... Griel king is so the Fisher king and thus the people can be. Good point. And one could argue that that is still true today. Um, First off, one thing I, I, I wrote down in my notes as I was going through this um, is really just to kind of go back and, and put a, a quick uh, definition, I guess, on the, word, on the word myth. Myth these days gets a pretty bad rap, as we've talked about many times, in, in, in that it, it's off, the word myth is often used synonymously to mean something false or something, a fake tale or a, a story that doesn't... Uh, doesn't hold true any longer or so forth. I think that, and this idea was uh, something that I think was propagated in the kind of uh, materialist outlook and the rational sort of, you know, world during the enlightenment and, and up to our modern age. But I think a lot of times that people have in the West have looked at mythology as a sort of a primitive account of, a scientific explanation of something that the primitive mind, quote unquote, could not grasp. And really, the way we're using the word is something that uh, is a is a truth that um, is is timeless. Would would you agree? Sure. I, one definition I like is a myth is a story that never was, but always is. So now, in in light of the fact that we have been having a, a few little technical issues on our side, we're just going to get back into uh, the unconscious a little bit, the collective unconscious and Jung's uh, definition of that that comes from the book. And Jung says that myths are spontaneous presentations from the collective unconscious of psychological and spiritual truth. So these are things that well up from the collective unconscious to give uh, humanity at large the wisdom it needs to navigate the world, basically. Dreams, in, in contrast to that, are individual messages from the the individual unconscious to help one uh, navigate his or her life uh, with some kind of clarity and consciousness. So for myth, for, for Jung, obviously myths have meaning for everyone because they represent in story archetypes and an archetype, which we haven't really gotten into, but a really nice definition in the book is, is archetypes are patterns of life which are universally valid. So these are patterns within and without that structure and and give us energy and we find them in all of our symbolism mythology religion and so on the archetypal 
energies that exist in the universe. We don't really have necessarily hard and fast names for these, but you know, we do have some ideas of different functions and they're, they're played out in things like the gods and in different tales and so forth. So for example, you know, the commutative communicative quality of man might be, um, might be Hermes or Mercury, depending on the mythology you're speaking of and so on. So this is, this is what's meant by the archetypal. We really hadn't talked about that yet. Do you have anything to add to that? Uh, well, just that it, that it is very important. Um, it's like if myths are the the stories, then you know the archetypes are the characters and and the events um, that happen you know within the myth, and we can all be um, you know it's like a prototype or a overreaching type that we all have you know the child within we all have uh, the survivor um, instinct. Sure. Um, now it's how we play those out in our lives. Uh, that makes a difference in the expression, but in the essence of the archetype, you know, they are universal patterns. Uh, who was it? I think it was uh, Larson um, who said that myths are stored in the body, um, that we have the receptor for all these mm-hmm. um, myths and archetypes. Uh, it's think, just uh, which one triggers, you know, that comes up and, yeah. oh, now I'm connecting with this one, or we see it in a movie uh, mm-hmm. that we relate to the character because maybe we're not like that character in real life, but archetypally underneath it all. Yeah. That's a great point. And I think um, one of the interesting things that, uh, that Jungian psychology does bring to the surface in a way uh, that a lot of uh, psychologies don't today it is the idea that we have um, that we do have multiple sort of parts of ourselves, if you want to call it that. And, you know, some people criticize that as, sound, you know, it sounds like, oh, well, like I'm Sybil or something. I've got all these multiple personalities and so on. And so they they, they criticize uh, Jung's, Jung's theories. But I, I think that that's uh, very short sighted, because if you just give a little thought to yourself in your own life, how many times have we been seized by something from within that causes us to do something and we can't understand why the hell we did it right that's you know that's a possession by a complex a part of ourself uh that is somewhat autonomous of the ego i think that's what scares us is that these things can seize us uh, or give us energies or moods or depressions or so forth and um you know in some ways um, in some ways it feels as if they're beyond our control you know, so what we're striving for uh, in, in, in the Jungian work is, is a strong ego, strong consciousness so that we can, we can kind of ride those out. But we can also come into relationship with those things, not necessarily uh, try to control them or squash them or what have you, because our genius also lies in, uh, in those, those different parts of ourselves. And, and that gets into uh, also the idea of, uh, of the shadow within. And can you share a little bit about the shadow in Jungian uh, thought? Well, sure. It's the parts of us that are distant. They're kept hidden from us. Uh, sometimes it's just, it's just a part of ourself we're unfamiliar with or we never mm-hmm. really got to connect with. Other elements in the shadow um, are ones that we purposely shove down there because we don't want to deal with them. They become scary. A rejection, man. They're rejected parts of ourselves, would you say? Yes, absolutely. And um, 
and the shadow is not always negative. The shadow is, it's just hidden. It's dark. Um, that's hidden either from us or sometimes, like we said, hidden by us, stuffed down into the shadow. Oh, I don't, that's just, that's ancient history. That's in the back of my mind. Oh, I'm not going to go there. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, that's fine for a while, but they, they do persist. And if they're not dealt with uh, in, a, in a very positive and uh, often nurturing kind of way, Mm -hmm. uh, they will rise up uh, and seek expression. Um, and exactly. that's when these shadow complexes, you know, show up and we're like, oh my gosh, yeah. you know, where'd that come no, from? A, that's a great point. And, and, you know, our, I guess, you know, doing this work, reading books like he, watching one's dreams and so on, help to raise the level of consciousness. So you can start to, to see some of these things operating within yourself and, and, and see these processes, uh, happening and hopefully uh you know gain some 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 sort of uh semblance of relationship to them so that they don't swamp you and i think that's uh that's the real the real challenge you know and today i think people are are so sort of um in the ego and in the materialistic viewpoint that they have trouble sometimes accepting the idea that there's a multiplicity of things going on in the soul if they will even recognize that there is a soul interesting side note and we've talked about this a million times the very word psychology is uh, psych, uh psyche uh is is the soul and it's the, the study of the soul and you know modern psychology doesn't even posit that there is a soul most of the time so it's an interesting uh kind of uh kind of challenge there i think today since we've we've gotten away from some of the ancient ideas and ancient ways of speaking about things and we're using all these scientific terminologies to to sort of understand ourselves but anyway i'm getting i'm getting ahead of myself and um sort of going off track so let me get back to this book and let us say that then by describing all these things i mean the parsifal story then is a is a way that a young man or a man of any age, really in middle age, it's equally appropriate. It's really appropriate at any stage in your, in your life, I would say, and I'm sure you would agree mm -hmm. um, of, of trying to navigate the challenges of masculinity and growth and maturation and carving one's uh, uh, career and, and life out. Would you, would you agree with that? Oh, definitely. And it can help us, you know, these myths can help us through those stages, um, through these stories, these allegories yeah. that, um, where we see a character <laughs> do this and we go, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm not a knight in the 12th century, so I'm not going to do what Parsifal did. But in my own way, I'm taking a similar journey. And by reading this myth, I can get some ideas uh, on how I can approach mine. That's a great point. One thing I, I wanted to look at uh, that I think is a is a challenging issue today uh, in my book is on page page thirty five, and these are some of the uh, some of the challenges that occur when one is not in good relationship with one's anima, that feminine part uh, of of the masculine psychology. Um, and this is, I think, something that's really pretty pretty uh, amazing about this book and and just one of the things that's important to to look at there are so many more but um he's talking about how the anima one needs to come into a conscious relationship with that femininity and um 
there is, uh, let me get to 36 here. He's talking about these definitions of, of different experiences that, that a man has, especially in the United States. And we have kind of a difficulty with all of these things. Um, and it's the differences between the distinctions between emotion, feeling, and mood. Emotion, feeling, and mood. And for me, that's around 35. I think it's going to be a little forward for you. It's 36 or 37 uh, okay. towards, towards the bottom. But I'm going to talk a little bit about that by reading this uh, because it's really quite brilliant. So most people, and he's speaking of most men, lump these experiences together indiscriminately. For them, a mood is an emotion and is a feeling. We must not do this for the distinctions to be made between these experiences enable a man to distinguish his inner woman and help him see clearly the way she operates in his psychology. So we'll spend some time on this. Emotion is a sum of energy that occurs or is set off in a person by a meaningful experience. Its chief characteristic is its energy. So he goes on to say emotions, morally neutral, et cetera, et cetera. But emotion then he's talking about is, is, a, is a quality of energy that, that comes up. Uh, and, he just, and this is where it becomes interesting and I think important for today. And this is where a lot of people go off track, especially in the United States, because we're not a very feeling-oriented culture. Feeling in terms of the, the four functions of thinking, feeling, uh, sensation, and intuition in the Jungian. Uh, so if you want, uh, actually, I don't want to go off, off track, but Google that for four functions, Jung, and there's a great there's great stuff online about that. So, but feeling is an act of valuing, and that kind of brings me back to that idea of of Manly Hall's definition of philosophy as a as a as a, a weighing of, of values and so forth. And this is what I think is really missing today in young, young people and in, in all of us really, but in, in young people especially because they're not taught how to value things properly and a value is 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 like i like this i love that i feel this is right i feel this is wrong this doesn't work for me at all and it's a very sort of uh you know kind of um gut oriented sort of a thing but at the same time it uh it's very there's a there's a, there's wisdom and intelligence and feeling and it's it's more about valuing than it is about emotion and i think that's a really a really a really big difference and then the last thing that he goes into is mood. And this is one of the, I think, the real strengths of this book is it explains how a man can deal with some of these moods and how he needs to, uh, to approach them. And, and that is what, because what happens is moods, a man gets seized by his moods and they come from, from the anima, from the feminine part of oneself. And, you know, you can see that when you're fighting with your girlfriend or your wife or so on you know, you're stuck in this sort of anima role where you're, you're trying to argue and you're all emotional and so on. And then the woman gets stuck in her animos role, her masculine role, and then she begins attacking you. And it, it, it's, it's never a pretty thing when that happens. The biggest tragedies occur when those, those complexes take a man and a woman over. And, um, you know, that is a big, a big part of this book is teaching men how to come to a relationship within themselves and how to deal with those moods. You don't have to be seized by them. You don't have to be seized by depression or these different things. And I thought that was a huge uh, contribution. I had, I had not really read that before I read this book in such a concise way. Did that uh, strike you as well? 
It, it did. And it's an interesting distinction between mood and feeling. Now he kind of defines his own terms so we can talk um, on that level, but it's often we can use them interchangeably. Well, I'm in a bad mood. Well, I have a bad feeling. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the way he describes them, they're very um, precise, right? In yeah, descriptions. yeah. The feeling is the ability to value, and mood is being overtaken or possessed by the inner feminine, as he said. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. Um, the feelings maybe are are more true. Um, they're more whether the feeling is good or bad. Um, they're more true to nature, uh, whereas a mood might just be temporal. And well, I, somebody said the wrong thing, or the dog barked, and now I'm in a bad mood. Um, if we approach things on the level of mood, we're, we're not going to get very far. But if we really get in touch with the feelings, um, then we have leverage to get somewhere. Exactly. And I think, again, you know, I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're going into uh, toward, you know, getting towards the end of, of our discussion today. Obviously, like, I, like we said at the beginning, we're not going to be able to cover every single thing in this book. But the the, the greatest thing about this book, I think, is the way that it weaves the story, the story of Parsifal and his grail quest and so on uh, into um, uh, and also a, a psychological exploration. So it, it's a very interesting and lively read for me um, in that, you know, you're, you're, you're following the story of Parsifal, but also there's little asides all throughout it explaining the different symbolism and then explaining how you can apply that as a, as a man or even as a woman, this is an important book for a woman to read as well. And he makes that point so that she can understand her sons, her, her lovers, her husbands, what have you, uh, you know, people she works with in greater detail, which is why it's important also for men to read she and we, so that we can see both sides. Would, Would you say that's true? It is true, and um, an interesting, uh, among other many interesting points he makes, is that a lot of the trouble in, say, a you know male-female relationship, um, it's it's not that it's toxic masculinity that's causing a problem; it's more the man's immature and maybe unrealized feminine side that has become toxic, and that's what comes out in an interaction with women. So think, well, I'm the guy's just being a jerk. Um, no, it's, it's his lack of, of connection and integration of his anima, his feminine side, his feminine aspect, um, that maybe he has a false sense of it or uh, something sure. is incorrect. And it's from that point of view that say, and I, to give an example from the book, that is if you have a, um, a sense of, you know, what a woman is supposed to do, say in your life, say in a, in a relationship, a, you know, a spouse or, um, you know, lover relationship. Um, if you're confusing that relationship with say the mother relationship, uh, that maybe you had as a child, well then as an adult, you're going to expect your wife now to, you know, wash your socks and make everything better for you. Um, you know, when you cry, she's going to comfort you and, while those aren't unreasonable, it's the importance and it's the insistence that, oh, if you don't do these things like mommy did to me when I was a baby, um, then I'm going to be angry and I'm going to come out and it will come out like a spoiled child 
or an unruly that's, child. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. Is the differentiation uh, within in a man in a man's life when he's able to come to some understanding of his own feminine interior nature, it actually will enhance his his relationships on the in the flesh and blood world with actual uh, girls and, and and women in his life. And I think that's one of the one of the real strengths of this book. And, you know, it's getting back to the, what you're saying there. I, I love this. This is a very interesting uh, section that, that, that Robert Johnson writes, and it's, and it's his words, not mine. Mood is being overwhelmed or possessed by some inferior feminine content in one's unconscious. When seized by a mood, it is though a man has become an inferior woman. Modern slang puts it aptly. He just becomes bitchy. That's all. <laughs> So, you know, that's an interesting thing. And that's, you know, nothing against women or not intended to, to, to put anyone down. It's a very interesting thing, though. What you were saying uh, before is, is, you know, a lot of man's, men's nastiness is their non-assimilated feminine qualities being acted out in very destructive ways. And I think that he uh, he puts it very succinctly there when he when he describes that. And I think many women, when they hear that, would go, "Yes, exactly. That's that's yeah. what he does. That's what he does when he's acting like like a baby or mama's boy or whatever he's whatever he's pulling when they're fighting and she's upset at him, um, or he's just acting out, right? So yes. I think those are really important things. These these differentiations." It's important, though, for for us not to throw the baby out with the bathwater because there is some negative or poison masculine energy out there it does not mean that masculinity is the enemy. In but we're not end, talking about gender. Uh, even yeah. if we are talking about men and women, we're really talking about, and so is Jung and, and Johnson and really sure. any of the uh, you know, analytic and archetypal psychologists, depth psychologists, is that you're just talking about a quality. Um, an aspect, uh, very strong, very powerful. Yes. And like yin and yang, relating it to sure, masculine sure. and feminine things. You could yeah. say, well, the sun is masculine and the moon is, is sure. feminine. It's not a gender assignment, <laughs> um, but we're talking about qualities and energies. Well, and there's good and bad on both sides. Sure, um, sure. Um, that's really, we're kind of coming to the end of, uh, of the discussion and we didn't, uh, get into everything, uh, that, uh, we could have, obviously there's so much in this book. So it's, I, you know, what I would want to people to leave with is to kind of understand, uh, you know, the basic, uh, gist of it. And it's, you know, he is, a is a telling of the Parsifal myth, uh, in his search for the Holy Grail and the psychological and, and symbolic, um, understandings that go along with that mythology so basically it's a book on masculinity and how to how to grow how to understand how to incorporate the feminine part of yourself but also how to in incorporate the uh the constructive masculine elements as well so really an important book for uh for men to read today um and i highly recommend it it's a it's a short read it's an easy read but a very important one and it's something that if you do read it, you will probably go back and read it again and again, like I do, uh, and as you do as well. Do you have anything uh, else to add to that? Well, sure. In the years I've been involved with this book, um, although the text hasn't changed, um, I have changed 
and my knowledge and experience um, have evolved. And, uh, and it's almost like reading the book again new. I find something new or you're at a different phase. So, yeah, it's definitely meant to be reread. Um, That's it's a great not just point. a one time. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost like a living document. And as you move through your mythological journey, uh, the book will, will actually uh, take on a different voice. Um, Good point. Good point. And I, and I also, I mean, this, this also kind of ties back into what we were talking about at the, at the beginning of the, the, uh, the discussion. It's, you know, more important today than ever for men, especially young men, but even older men, men in middle age and so forth to, uh, to reconnect with both the masculine part of themselves and the feminine. In a lot of ways, more of the work today, uh, especially with the way school is set up and most families are set up and most young men are raised by single women and so forth. A lot of this excavation work and a lot of the sort of repair work that's going to go on in the masculine psyche is going to be retrieving some of those masculine qualities and, and starting to live those out. Cause you know, many men today, as opposed to maybe in the seventies when this was written, um, that generation, many men today would, probably lean more towards the, the feminine side uh, than they would the masculine. So now they've got to get in touch with that, you know, that night energy, that red night energy he talks about, which you'll read about in the book, that, that masculine aggressive energy that needs to also be assimilated. So, you know, that's, that's, that's important as well. Um, do you have anything to add to that? Well, it's, it's, it asks the question that needs to be asked over and over again, you know, just what is masculinity? What, what is, good, positive, effective masculinity. What are those traits and how yeah. can we recognize them in others and how can we cultivate them within ourselves? And yeah, exactly. like I said, you know, with media images and things, it's very easy to get into a debate or conflict when you're just looking at surface, very kind of material, um, like I said, almost like a caricature of, of these energies exactly uh, it's harder work to get past that and um, move yeah. more inside move a little deeper let go of maybe what the knee-jerk reaction might be to uh, well toxic yeah. femininity what's that it's the patriarchy's fault now, set that aside and let's look at these energies and archetypes and and see how we can work with them so it takes a little patient takes a little bit of strength and you you have to just really get out of that reactionary mode and take a look yeah, at things and, and that's a good point. And also it does require some contrary thinking because I would argue that most of the media today uh, presents what you're talking about, caricatures and uh, negative stereotypes of masculine energy. It's all and most of the television shows and most of uh, the films today uh, present masculine figures as buffoons or idiots or jokes or malicious uh, uh, criminals. Those I, seem to be I the mean, two extremes that are that are uh, the choices right? kind of and given so, to us. Yeah, it's the ineffectual so husband who's oh yes, honey, okay, dude, yeah, can't really do exactly. anything. You just you just sit there on the couch, honey, and drink your beer and watch the game. It'll be all right. Yeah, and I'll, uh, I'll fix everything. Or he's right? he's an axe so, murderer and a serial killer and stuff. Yeah, it seems to be again. It's these extremes are you know they're fine for drama on TV, but it, it's yeah, exa but, I understand that. But and, and I, I agree. But unfortunately, you know, the, the media is a, a big influence on on everyone. And so we've got to kind of uh, 
what I want to say, like uh, uh, sort of weed out the negative, uh, the negative stereotypes and so on and start feeding ourselves more positive images. And, and that's why I think this book is a great start for that. Uh, because you start to see the mythological stories, other, you know, mythological stories that, you know, that would fit this, obviously, I mean, we're looking at the Parsifal Grail legend, and you've got the Arthurian legends, and so forth, you've got the mythology of Gilgamesh, um, you've got all of the hero's journey type, uh, Joseph Campbell's work on the hero's journey is excellent, um, the, there's a, a, a book on the Holy Grail that Emma Young and von Franz did which has a lot of really great information in right so again we uh we discussed uh Robert Johnson uh he today and we highly recommend that you purchase that it's available out there on Amazon or anywhere you buy books it's a bestseller and it's very cheaply uh purchased and highly recommended by by both of us and actually if you look on YouTube and... somebody has narrated the book <laughs> oh, <hopefully. laughs> on YouTube oh, so fantastic uh, so if it's another option to listen to that for free uh, check it out on YouTube as well. So uh, I think that's about all we can cover today, unfortunately. Sure. Uh, thank you so much for, for discussing, Chris, Absolutely. Uh, with me today, this this important book. And um, so they can find more about you at uh, Chris Sheridan, C-H-R-I-S-S-H-E-R-I-D-A-N.com. Or they can look you up uh, on Amazon and get your book, The Spirit in the Sky. Uh, and I think the, the website you've got, do you have contact information there? What have you? Uh, sure I think so. Yeah, you're, you're updating it or what have you. I think you're in the process. Of I, I'm in the process. Yeah, it's not there yet. <laughs> all right. So I, I am updating all, all my stuff as well. So there's no crime in that. All right. Um, and I have my book up as well. Uh, so check that out if you get a chance. There'll be a little plug for that at the end. Uh, thank you for joining us on uh, the Cosmic Eye Show. And again, thank you, Chris Sheridan, for co co-hosting with me speaking about robert johnson's he well thank you for I having appreciate you. it thank you brother and uh we will uh we will be speaking again soon all right sounds terrific all right everybody have a great uh, a great week god bless. bless thank you bye thank you for listening and please join us next sunday for a new episode of cosmic eye you can purchase if you can worry you can meditate at amazon.com or through our website cosmiceye.org